Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Migraine isn't head pain. Migraine is a genetically mediated disorder that is influenced by stress and nutrition and diet and everything under the sun. What you have to figure out is what things affect you the most and where specifically is your brain affected. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. All right. Today on The Less Stress Life, we have Dr. Adam Harcourt, who is the owner of Imagine X Functional Neurology with office locations in Beverly Hills and Santa Barbara, California. He's a fellow of the American College of Functional Neurology, a fellow of the American Board of Vestibular Rehabilitation, diplomat of the American Chiropractic Neurology Board, and a fourth generation doctor of chiropractic. Dr. Harcourt is a an associate professor of clinical neurology at Carrick Institute for Graduate Studies, where he travels both domestically and internationally, instructing doctors from all over the world. He's also created a 150-hour postdoctoral program, also titled Mastering Migraine, which he instructs doctors from all over different backgrounds from around the world. He is dedicated to giving back and has served on the board of directors at Jody House Brain Injury Support Center, Santa Barbara, California, for many years and was board president from 2017 to 2018. He has presented multiple abstracts on migraine, concussion, dysautonomia, and multiple sclerosis at research symposiums over the past several years. He was speaker at International Symposium of Clinical Neuroscience on migraine in 2018 and presenter and chair at Neurological Disorder Symposiums on his treatment of migraine in 2019. So he's a sought-after speaker and has spoken at many different events across the U.S. on migraine, concussion, treatment, and diagnosis on podcasts, television, interviews, and more. And we're excited to get into all things migraine today. Welcome, Dr. Harcourt. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So a lot of people have a personal story that brings them into where how they got so interested in this. And I know we're going to dive a little bit into traumatic brain injury and migraine today. How did this become your front and center is the real yeah, question. Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny. It, it kind of went backwards for me. So when I originally started, I was focusing on MS and, and TBI specifically, not MTBI and migraine. But once we started practicing in Santa Barbara, there was a lot of really great resources for MS and more traumatic brain injury, not necessarily the mild. And what I kept getting in my office were these just chronic lingering post-concussion syndrome, migraine, dizzy patients that were all told, hey, you're kind of fine, just rest until you get better. And that's, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the line. And so we found the way that we approach it did really, really well with these cases. And so when I originally thought I figured out migraine, I'm like, oh, I got this. This is great. And then, of course, we got more complicated cases and, and I didn't have it. And so that's what kind of led me down the rabbit hole into hormones and nutrition and laser therapy and all this different stuff. But come to find out, 
my wife actually has a family history of migraine that had never presented. And after I had already written the book and all this, we had our third and she had her first migraine. And we said, oh my goodness, <laughs> look, look what we got here. So luckily with all the background and all the stuff that we developed, we've been able to you know, pretty much keep that at bay so she doesn't have any more attacks. But some of her family has had it. We've been able to fix those. So you know, I, I kind of got lucky that we ended up specializing in the thing that the family needed. So that's where we came from. Well, this will lead us to another good question because sometimes people say, hey, I've got a family history of this. And I say, hey, hold on. Sometimes things are genetic and sometimes they're environmental. And so being in the same environment of the family. So talk to us about, this may lead into like what causes migraines a little bit. But when you say family history of migraines, let's start there. What things are going on behind the scenes in a family history that's going to present itself in your wife post? Like, you can just use part of her story if it helps tell the story, right? Like, how do you decide that it is actually a little bit of family history? Nature versus nurture, I think, is the real question here. Sure. That's a great question. And it's kind of the focus of my book is the fact that people kind of get this backwards is they think it's, you know, either one or the other, or it's just stress or it's just, you know, diet or whatever. But the reality is it is genetic, which doesn't mean that your parents have to have it. It just means that your genes as a migraine patient are different from people that can't get migraine. But that doesn't mean you have to have migraine all the time, right? So when you come to the nature versus nurture argument, it's really kind of the perfect analogy for it because it is nature, right? It is in your genes. However, there's people that have propensity to migraine that get them once every decade. And then there's people that have them every day. So what the heck is up with that? And so really what we're finding is there's not one gene that turns on or turns off migraine. What we're starting to find is there's probably 50 or 60 different genes that can be involved and they all have to do with ion transport. So whether it's calcium or sodium or the ATP pump or, you know, whatever it is, those ion channels are what keep the neuronal pool or the neurons healthy or stable. And when those are dysfunctional, that's what can lead to what's called hyperexcitability. And that's what causes migraine. Now, traditionally think of migraine as, you know, just head pain or, or something like that, but that's just a manifestation of migraine in one part of the brain. If the exact same thing happens in the vestibular part of the brain of the vestibular nuclei, now you get vestibular migraine. If it's in the ocular area, ocular migraine or hemiplegic migraine or all these different things. And so what I try to get people to understand is migraine isn't head pain. Migraine is a genetically mediated disorder that is influenced by stress and nutrition and diet and everything under the sun. What you have to figure out is what things affect you the most and where specifically is your brain affected? Because the only way to stimulate or stabilize those areas short of fixing your genes is by activation. And that's going to be different for everyone. Mm, I understand because I work in skin issues and I would say the same thing. If you have a propensity <laughs> to having those, they can appear, right? If you give that's it right. the right environment. Let's back up and actually qualify migraine versus headache versus aura, which I think sometimes get interchanged. It would be great to understand the differences. Yeah. One of the most frustrating things with my migraine patients is when they're told they just have a headache that's infuriating to them. And so the difference is if you don't have the genetic predisposition, you cannot get migraine, period. Now, if you have, say, a traumatic brain injury, you can have temporary ionic cha uh, changes that mimic a migraine. And so sometimes people get lumped into migraine and then they're just, you know, so confused why none of the migraine medications work and none of the abortives work. And it's like, well, you don't have migraine. That's why they don't work. Uh, and so you have to go back to figure out, oh, it's actually post-traumatic headache. So when you're talking about migraine itself, again, it's that it's a genetic predisposition. But when you think of migraine, a lot of people think, oh, you have to have the aura. When in reality, only about 33% of all migraine patients have aura. So it's not actually a necessity. It's not even the most common thing with migraine. So aura is just a prodrome or it's something that happens before the migraine occurs, but you can also have aura symptoms without any head pain at all. So say you have just the visual symptoms, kind of the, the blinking, the flashing, what we call scintillating scotomas. That can occur by itself, and those are just known as ocular migraine, right? and that's its own classification. But if you have aura and then it turns into a migraine, that's considered migraine with aura. Now, 
as far as treating migraine, I don't find that it actually makes a big difference whether or not you, you know you have aura or not. But when you look at things like stroke risk or now they're looking at cognitive function, there does seem to be a little bit of correlation with migraine with aura as far as increased risk of different things down the road, as opposed to just regular migraine. And we don't know why yet. But as far as, you know, how does it manifest? It's just different levels of migraine. Now, a headache is something that can happen from any number of causes. So whether it's tension or from your neck or whether it's, you know, high blood pressure, all those things can cause headache, but they are not going to manifest the same way as migraine does. What do we call it when, I hope this doesn't feel off topic too much, but you know, when people have Lyme history and they have joint pain and head pain, do you think that falls under migraine or headache? Because it sounds like headache is temporary. Migraine is prolonged. Is that incorrect? So the way I like to describe it is you get this with all sorts of conditions is if you have another type of headache disorder, it increases your probability of causing migraine if you have the predisposition. So a really common one is people have neck pain and they'll have, you know, pain in the back of their head, or maybe they'll get a tension headache and they get that 10 times a month maybe. But it's only two or three or four times a month that they actually get that full blown, you know, unilateral pulsating eye, you know, pain, that's the migraine. So before that, it's a different type of headache. But that headache, because it increases the allostatic load on your body, it increases your chances for migraine. So now that let's say that tension headache now turns into a migraine. So they're different conditions, but they are related. Yeah, it's the migraine is when it overflows all the way. And it's yeah, the way I describe it is when you figure out what part of the brain is affected, think of it like a bucket. And when that bucket fills up and overflows with all those different stressors, regardless of what they are, that's when you get a migraine. So say you develop a neck issue. Well, now your bucket's going to be a lot fuller just on a daily basis. So now you deal with a stressful situation or lack of sleep or you eat really crappy and your bucket overflows. Now you're getting migraine. Well, it's not one of those things by themselves. It's just now you've reached that threshold that you're allowed to have migraine. So when you look at treating it, you want to A, empty the bucket, right? So you look at hormones, nutrition, neck pain, all the neurological dysfunction, that's emptying the bucket. But you can also increase the size of your bucket, which most people don't understand, where you're making those areas more stable by stimulating those parts of the brain. So whether that's peripheral nerve stimulation, manual therapy, laser therapy, whether it's exercises, whatever it is, it's got to be targeted to where your bucket is. And that's how you can increase the size, which increases your resistance to overflowing and having the migraine. I was going to go off and ask you about different parts of the brain and neuroinflammation, but I kind of want to talk about this increased size of bucket. I want you to elaborate on that a little bit more because your analogies are perfect. So we can empty the bucket by addressing all the things. Let's like pull all the things out and then let's figure out, because I was thinking, hey, and then we'll figure out what fills the bucket the fastest, but you've got better. You're better than that. Like we're going to increase the size of the bucket. I want you to go through those things that help increase the size of the bucket a little bit more and kind of how they work a little bit. And I think that these are under our overall umbrella for treatments, right? Empty the bucket, then these can help. Like go into that a little bit, if you will. Yeah, no, exactly. And you are right. There are going to be things for each person. So I I illustrate this in the book as well. Each person has a different type of bucket. So some people, 80% of their buckets filled up with nutrition. So they try a new diet. They feel great. They're like, hey, this is amazing. Everybody's got to try it. Well, then their friend that only has 10% of the bucket filled up with that nutrition, it's probably awesome for them but it doesn't make as big of a difference because there's too many things filling up their bucket. So you are right where once you can dial in on the thing that fills it the most, it's certainly going to help them more than anything else. So Mm -hmm. that's right on. Now, as far as increasing the size of the bucket, the way I try to liken this is if you actually look at what parts of the brain can be affected by migraine, it's like all of them, right? So when you think about if you go through the literature and you look at any therapy, whether it's acupuncture, chiropractic, massage, exercise, breathing therapy, meditation, yoga, all of those things have indications for helping migraine. So it's like, well, how the heck, you can't do everything, right? So what the heck do you do? And the reason all those things work is they all target different parts of the brain. So the same way that, say you go to the best physical therapist in the whole world and you sprain your left ankle and that's why you're going. Well, if they do all the perfect, amazing stuff, but they do it to your right ankle, that left ankle is not going to get a whole lot better, right? And so it's the same thing with the bucket. So let's say, for example, you have head pain. The most common areas that I'm finding that are dysfunctional in classic migraine are areas of the brainstem. 
Now, not only can it be the three parts, the midbrain, the pontine area, and the medullary area, but it can also be either side of the brain, right? Because we usually have a unilateral presentation with migraine, and generally it's on the same side, but not all the time. And so when you look at what's known as a trigeminocervical complex, which is kind of like your pain processing center in the pons for your face, that's ultimately where the failure is. But if you look at what controls it, you have both the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla that have various areas that contribute to it. So let's say in one person, they're having right-sided migraines, okay? Well, we'll do our exam, we'll look at neurological dysfunction, and we find, you know what, that left side of the midbrain isn't doing so well. Well, in order to stimulate those areas of the brain, you have to stimulate the nuclei and the centers in that midbrain. So let's say convergence eye exercises or vertical eye movements or proximal muscle activity or things like that that target the right side of the midbrain. That's what you want to do with that patient. Well, if you have another patient that has the exact same presentation, but you see a lot more dysfunction in that, say, left vestibular nuclei or that left lower brainstem area, that's going to be a much different stimulation than the other person you just saw. Same exact presentation, different areas of the brain for stimulus. So person B might do awesome with vestibular rehab, targeted to the left. The next person might do great with virgins exercises focused on the right. Now, as far as peripheral nerve stimulation, both those patients may get peripheral nerve stimulation to say the supertrochlear and superorbital nerves on that right side. Maybe that's great for them, but you don't know until you do the testing, until you actually see that patient in particular. So for example, you look at things like the cephaly or you look at things like gamma core, right? Which are different types of neuromodulation. Those can be awesome, but they're generalized therapies. They do it to both sides of the brain or both sides of the vagal nerve. Well, again, that's great, but if you have dysfunction in one side versus the other, you're still creating this imbalance, right? And that imbalance is what ultimately can cause some of your problems. So in those cases, eye movements, vestibular rehab can be great. In other patients, manual therapies like massage, chiropractic, acupuncture can be great. And in some cases, things like laser therapy can be great because there's a good study I really like right now that they compared low-level laser to Botox and they did it in all the same areas and they saw the exact same regression of symptoms over the exact same period of time. And and I've been loving using the laser because what they found is even after discontinuation of Botox and laser, Botox maintained the reduction, whereas the laser continued to reduce, which from a neurophysiological standpoint makes sense because instead of inhibiting the activity to that trigeminal nucleus, you were upregulating it at a tolerable rate. So to me, it makes sense, but it's also exciting because it doesn't hurt. (laughs) It's not miserable and you don't necessarily have to go every three months to get it fixed up. So those are some examples if that helps. Are you doing laser therapy in your office or do you send people home with little lasers? Yeah, we do it in our office because they're quite expensive. Um, You can get ones that are less expensive, but you're still talking, you know, the cheapest ones I've seen that you can take home are maybe five, six grand. uh, Mm -hmm. And those are little handheld ones. So, but the ones we have, they rotate, they have multiple heads. So, you know, it it makes treatment a lot quicker, Mm -hmm. but it's not something you can necessarily take home yet. Now there are things like LED lights and different things you can get at a lower price point. And they're not bad for you, but they're also what the laser uses as placebo in their studies. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's not going to hurt you, but you're not necessarily getting much of a benefit. So this is what popped into my head when you were talking about how it worked. And I haven't done an episode dedicated to red light therapy. So I don't know if that was partially what you were referring to, but I think that there are, we have common denominators between red light therapy and laser therapy. It's, For sure. We have similarities, just some wavelength differences and probably how deep they penetrate, et cetera. But the one sentence claim to fame of red light therapy is that it improves cellular function, right? It helps ATP production. As I've heard you talk about this, you mentioned this in a couple different ways. We essentially have to make the cell work. It's kind of what I've heard you say in different ways. Is that somehow somewhat the way the laser you think is working? Am I oversimplifying? Is that, is that oversimplification no. <laughs> at work or not really? No. So the honest answer is we don't actually know yet, right? Because there's, I mean, there's over 9,000 papers on low-level laser, you know, and they're just kind of starting to get into how it works, especially in the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like you said, as far as laser therapy goes, we know that there's ATP upregulation. We know it diminishes inflammation in certain areas, but as far as how does it work in the brain, it's like, well, is it just from the inflammation? Is it just from the ATP production? Is it a combination? Is something else happening? Because a weird thing that I've noticed is we'll use different frequencies 
for, say, pain reduction. And if I use them in my concussion patients, it flares them up like crazy. But if I use the exact same frequency, exact same laser, everything, but I dial it down to a much lower frequency, they love it. It makes them calm. It really improves their functionality. It's like, well, what the heck is going on, right? So there are some strange things we don't totally understand yet. But what my thought is, when I'm looking at these parts of the brain, the reason that the cells aren't functioning well is because they aren't ma- able to maintain their resting membrane potential, right? It should be negative 70, negative 75 millivolts. And anytime you have dysfunction in those ionic channels, it's basically like a leaky cell, right? It comes closer and closer to threshold, which means it's going to be more unstable. Well, outside of fixing that ion channel, the only way to reduce the charge or, or keep that those ions or that ionic charge low is through protein production. Well, the only way you produce proteins is through stimulation. And that's how you get that, what's known as the cellular immediate early gene response, stimulates the the core of the cell, you get more protein production, that's how you keep that cell stable. So again, depending, my theory, and this is where we're actually looking into doing gene research, my theory, just based on seeing patients for so long, is that the people that are more chronic and more challenging to treat likely have multiple genes that are dysfunctional. So you're not dealing with just a calcium channel issue or an ATP pump issue. You're probably dealing with multiple of those. So you have to throw the book at them just to get any change whatsoever. And my guess is if you have, you know, let's say 15 genes that are abnormal, there's just not really much of anything you can do. Whereas somebody that has like one gene abnormality, you can fix that pretty quickly. Now, again, that's just complete conjecture. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing at this point, but from the pathophysiology of migraine, that would make the most sense to me, at least at this point. So the way I practice, I will tend to look at genetics last because I will address the things that are actually, what do we call what you it? Can do. The nurture. Right? Modifiable. Think, yeah. Right. But in your case, if we've got so many things going on, do you look at genetics first sometimes to help you target your therapy? No. So we don't have that research yet. So that's why I'm really interested in it. So we've actually been working with a number of different genetic companies, which believe it or not, is really complicated. To, they're not to that just good. Get a, they're, they're really hard. And so to do what we want to do, they have to basically start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a panel right now that looks at all the genes I'm trying to look at. So the reality is we have no idea. But that's actually why I want to do the research into it. Because my thought is if we could come up with all these different tests for the migraine patients, now you have almost a bulletproof prognosis for what therapies are likely to be most effective. And if there's really much you can do, right? Because if you have somebody that you know, just has, say, 20 genes that are abnormal, and we know that that outcome is terrible, well, unfortunately, they may be a good candidate for pain management or something that's going to just get them through the day, right? Now, me as a conservative practitioner, that hurts my heart, right? <laughs> that's all you can do. But you also don't want to put people through you know, years and years of procedures that just don't help them out. So yeah, we don't use genetics yet, but it's simply because we don't have the research for it. Well, I appreciate you mentioning the walls that you hit as well, because I felt those same walls. It's You have to create your own panel if you want to see exactly what you want to see. And honestly, the testing can be a little overwhelming initially yeah. for people. So I will tend to just start with, here's the things that work for most people. We can and, do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and here's the things that your symptoms tell us first and your history. All right, I'd like to use a story to ask you about areas of the brain and neuroinflammation and basically traumatic brain injury. So I'm going to use a a little bit of a story because this is a client story. And I think she said she was told that there was not a relationship between her traumatic brain injury and the stroke that followed. And since then, there is a a lot of research around that. And that's kind of, you look at that a lot. So basically went skiing, hit head on back right side. And then before a month prior to having a lot of stress, and then started to get like aura and sparkles and feel well a month later. And she walked upstairs and passed out and hit her opposite side of her head. And then the next morning she woke up and had a stroke. So I'd like to just talk about traumatic brain injury, stroke, migraine onset, not necessarily stroke, but traumatic brain injuries and the onset of migraines. Because I think of another client who, and I'll give you one sentence version of his story. I believe it was a car accident. And I know that he has found you know, like you say, one of his triggers is screens that have a little flicker and you don't know that they have a flicker. It's a battery preserving thing. So he has to be, he uses an older phone, like a a different model of a phone that doesn't have pulse width modulation. And he uses, I believe a, a TV for a screen. I think, I think that because it doesn't have that. So I just want to talk about, yeah, 
And I think with the whiplash, right, we're talking about brainstem, which you have brought up earlier. So if you want to reiterate on that. So just curious what your thoughts are on the traumatic brain injury leads to migraine and the the type of areas that are hit. And the reason I'm thinking about this is I went through a program or a course on neuroinflammation one time and... Ooh, there's a lot of stuff there. And basically when the brain changes, it really affects the nutrition. And so it's very interesting to me because you would not necessarily think that. So I wanted to set the stage on like how my brain is thinking in a really applicable version (laughs) before giving it to you and telling us how you are kind of seeing it. Sure. So a lot to unpack there. Uh, So we'll we'll start more with the traumatic brain injury or more MTBI because what you're talking about is more TBI Mm -hmm. uh, and there's different things. So with TBI, the stroke risk is way, way higher early on, right? That's really what you're worried about. So when you go to the ER, when you're monitoring somebody, you're worried about brain bleeds, you're worried about strokes, you're worried about swelling, things like that. But as far as migraine goes, I I go over this in my book where we talk about the three main things that happen after head trauma that relate to migraine. The most common one is that you have a history of migraine, even if it's once or twice a year, you have them. You get head trauma and boom, man, do they start to increase, right? That's the most common thing that you'll see. So you have the history. We know you have the genetics. You get more trauma. It fills up your bucket. Now you got lots of migraines, right? That's most common. The second one that we see is that you've never had a migraine in your entire life. You've had headaches, but no migraine. And then boom, you get a a TBI, MTBI, and you start getting migraine-like headaches, or you start just getting chronic headaches, and now you're classified as migraine. So that's the other one. And the last one is the exact same thing happens, but you actually now have migraine. And what that means is you had the genetic predisposition, your buckets never overflowed, now it is, and now you're manifesting with migraine. That is the most uncommon one that I see, right? That usually will present in younger patients. So people that are, you know, 18, 19, 20, haven't quite got to where the migraine is manifesting. The more common one is probably what you're referring to. I I don't know her history, but if they've never had migraine before, they get head trauma and now they have quote unquote migraine, I can almost guarantee it's not migraine. All right. And these are the people that'll be refractory to the abortive meds, like the triptans, the new Japans, things like that. And then they'll try every preventative under the sun and none of them will work. Well, the reason is migraine is a completely different pathophysiology for head pain versus everything else. So what is imminently frustrating is the fact that migraine does not have a gold standard objective diagnosis at this point. We could go over that. There's a whole other topic. There's cool stuff coming out. But what ends up happening is if you try all this stuff, we don't know why you're having a headache, boom, you now have migraine. We're just going to label you with that. And I've had a number of patients that just get stuck because they're told they have it even though they don't. So those are the three. The most common is they increase after the head trauma and you've already had them. The other one is they manifest afterwards because you had the genetic predisposition. And the third one is you're just called a migraine because that's all they can come up with when in reality you should be diagnosed as more post-traumatic headache or you know say non-new persistent daily headache, something like that. So those are the most common. Now, stroke risk, again, that's another thing you're really concerned early on. Later on, it's correlated, but it's not as it's not like 50% of people have strokes after TBI. It's just, you know, you, you increase your risk because you had trauma to the brain. Mm-hmm. And you went over a little bit about, how do we say this? If you have a certain area of the brain affected, it may present the same, but the treatment is going to be different. You're thinking treat that particular area that has maybe inflammation. Wouldn't it be a bit systemic if even if one area is hit or do you find that, no, you have like actual damage to that particular area. And so what's the downstream? Let's say you hit a certain part of your head. What happens next versus a different part of your head? I think that's what I want to ask. That's a great question. Again, this kind of goes to now we know more, so we can be a little bit more specific. We used to think, you know, oh, it's coup and counter coup. So it's, you know, the cortex that's taken the brunt of the trauma. And that's not really the case. What we really find is inside your brain, your brain is held pretty good by the dura, but the consistent thing we see with falls, with head trauma, with whiplash, with anything is no matter where you hit, because the brain is moving around inside the skull there, the common denominator is the fact that you're still tethered by the spinal cord, that brainstem is still tethered. And so no matter where the cortex goes, you're getting this tethering and this depolarization on different areas of the brainstem. So the brainstem is the one that's almost always impacted in concussions, whiplash, head trauma, all that kind of stuff. So this is why things like DTI imaging is being more 
kind of explored for concussion specifically, because you can see the damage, the white matter in these tracks in the brainstem. And that's usually where you'll see it. It also correlates really heavily to the symptoms that you see, right? So light and sound sensitivity is all midbrain. And when you have dizziness, that's all lower brainstem, right? Vestibular nuclei. When you have headaches, that's more trigeminal area. So you just have all these areas of the brain that, you know, depending on where you get hit, it can affect all those things. But what happens on almost every concussion patient is you have light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, headaches, dizziness, lightheadedness, and that's all this unconscious function. Now, if you look at the cortical activation, you are going to have damage to those areas. And in each patient, it will make a difference how damaged those areas are as to how long the cognitive abilities come back, things like memory, those are going to be a little more challenging. Now, when it comes to inflammation, yes, that is systemic, right? It's not going to be localized. When we talk about migraine, though, it's not inflammation that's causing the damage per se. The genetic predisposition is causing those areas to be hyper-excitable, right? Because the neurons cannot stay at that negative 70, negative 75. They're closer to 60, negative 55, closer to that threshold that takes almost no stimulation in order to cause an action potential. So when we talk about focusing stimulation of those areas, that's specifically to activate those neurons create that cascade of that early immediate gene response to increase protein production to make that area or that neuron further away from threshold, more stable. That's what you're going for. Now, what's going to screw that up? Inflammation is going to screw that up. But if you have inflammation and you already have this predisposition, say in the midbrain, that's where you're going to see symptoms. Whereas, you know, everywhere else can, let's say, take it, right? It's not as big of a deal because you don't have that predisposition. Now you throw in trauma. Now you're just filling up the bucket more and more. Mm. That's the deal. I see. Yeah. Inflammation in general is kind of the whole bucket of gray. It, it exacerbates whatever you have going on. I always right. joke with, with patients. It doesn't matter what I'm treating them for. When they go on vacation, it's amazing how much better they get uh, mm. for that week or two when they're gone. So it mm-hmm. uh, definitely plays a part. I was thinking about another case where she had meningitis. And so memory really struggled after that, but that's like full brain inflammation. So after that, you're going to see, like you said, a challenged memory potentially, and maybe the same stuff as headaches or, yeah. Yeah, you can. And so when it comes to that, it depends. So meningitis is different, right? Mm -hmm. You're causing all sorts of problems and that can affect anything. Mm -hmm. When you're talking specifically about head trauma, for example, what I normally find is the memory, the cognitive, that's usually secondary to the brainstem. Because if you look at just the evolution of of how the brain evolved, the brain is there for one main purpose. It's there to know where you are in space and to know where space is in regards to you. That's it. Everything else is just bonus, right? It's just extra. So, you know, being able to remember things, being able to sing, being able to talk to somebody or remember somebody's name, who cares if you don't know where your arm is, right? And so when you get head trauma and you lose that ability to know exactly where you are in space, you're devoting a lot of that neural energy into just figuring out where the heck you are. So what I tend to find is once you fix the brainstem issues, whether it's vestibular, whether it's ocular motor, whether it's trigeminal, once that gets better and you reduce that inflammation, you reduce that strain on the system, now a lot of times those cognitive things just come back. But if you fix that stuff first, and now there's still memory issues, cognitive issues, now you can chalk it up a lot more to cortical dysfunction. And then things like brain training or memory gains can be great. But if you try those first, and you still haven't fixed, you know, being able to know where you are when you stand up, it doesn't last, right? It doesn't work very well. So I just kind of like to start from the middle and work my way out. And that tends to be the most efficient way to get back to normal. Got it. You work on things that stem from the brain stem first. Is that what you're saying? I start there first, then I work my way up. Yeah. Okay. I think on the same note is migraine and concussion, because we were talking about traumatic brain injury, aka concussion. Did we leave anything unturned there, or do we need to talk about treatment around that? Or did saying fixing brainstem issues summarize that before I like leave that area? Well, to be fair, if we were to, to go over <laughs> that, it would take about three or 400 hours. So, yeah. but it, when we say fixing brainstem issues, I go back to the ankle example, because what you'll see in a lot of practices, and, and even when I first started learning, say vestibular rehab, for example, the way it's traditionally taught is more of this bilateral activation, right? So if you're dizzy, just spin them to the left, spin them to the right, do head exercises up, down, left, right. And I'm going to tell you, that makes a lot of people worse from concussion. Now, with traditional peripheral vestibular issues, it can be great, right? It can really help out. But 
going back to the ankle example, the way the vestibular system works is not like a muscle, right? The vestibular system is a push-pull mechanism. And so if you get trauma to the brain or brainstem, and there's more on one side versus the other, which there almost always is, even if you do exercises or activities to increase the stability or the health of both sides, you still have an imbalance, right? It's, it's like a seesaw. And so unless you target those therapies to the area that is most dysfunctional to level them out, you're going to continue to have this, what's called a sensory mismatch in that vestibular nuclei. And so sometimes I'll get patients that have gone through the ringer and they've done, you know, eye exercises, vestibular rehab, they've done manual therapies, they've done all this stuff and we'll get to treat them and we'll do things very similar to five different doctors or practitioners, but we just, we target it towards their lesion or their dysfunction and the changes can be within days, right? And they can happen really, really quickly. So you just want to make sure you're targeting those therapies because you can also exacerbate the symptoms with the same therapies that can also make you better, which tends to turn people away from those therapies. So, you know, it's a really fine balance. You have to find the right therapy, you have to find the right amount, and you have to find the right duration. And once you do that, people can do really, really well. Makes sense. Under the umbrella of this is, are we talking about vagus nerve therapy a little bit or no? Yeah, no, sometimes that is really helpful. We'll use anything from peripheral nerve stimulation of the vagus nerve, which can be great, to other things like we'll use carotid massage or we'll use tilt table therapy or breathing exercises or things like that, but we'll use them in conjunction with other therapies. So the most common use that I have for vagal nerve stim is with like my POTS patients or my dysautonomia patients where, you know, they stand up and they want to pass out or their heart races, you know, 40 beats a minute just from sitting up. And most of the time, again, it goes back to not exactly knowing where you are in space. And so when you sit up, you thought you were, you know, say, shunting blood to your head and you don't. So now all of a sudden your heart goes crazy trying to get blood up to the head so you don't pass out. And that's where this dysautonomia comes from. So doing things like eye movements or peripheral nerve stim or vagal stimulation at different angles while you're doing, you know, tilt table therapy can be super powerful for those patients. But as far as general vagal nerve stimulation, it never hurts, right? We're always in a sympathetic state, so mm -hmm. I'm never against it. But there's also a ton of great things you can do outside of, say, our office. And so we usually recommend those things to do on your own, as opposed to, you know, just kind of generally right. using them at the office. Right. Thanks for taking care of the POTS people. Oh, I feel so help. bad for them. Me too. Uh, it, they're told that nothing can be done and you're stuck this way. And, you mm -hmm. know, here's beta block. It's, it's just it's not handled well. And I'll tell you, they do really, really well. And it's, you know, it's not that, I don't want to say not that complicated, but it doesn't take a tremendous amount of time when you focus that therapy to get them to where they're not having just extraordinary symptoms all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole because you brought this up. I mean, you're talking about ion, I've been talking about minerals really. So I want to talk sure. about, I mean, I want to back up and we'll summarize a little bit before we're done on treatments for migraines, because I think you probably walk through those in the book. So we'll summarize a little bit like on what people can find more, but let's go to nutrition and migraine. Let's start with minerals. And let's talk about the importance of minerals because man, since I, and this week, a, a podcast on minerals came out and uh, I'm really on a mineral rabbit hole. So right. let's talk about what you see as I'm going to put this under the umbrella of nutrition and migraine and your feelings <laughs> on, on minerals overall first. Sure. So, you know, like you said, they're extremely important. Now, luckily the body regulates most of them pretty closely. So, you know, massive deficiency usually don't see in migraine, but that's classic of all migraine testing is you normally don't see pathological signs. They're more these functional signs. So the most common is like hormonal testing. They'll be told everything's perfect. You do a little bit more in-depth testing and you find out, well, yeah, technically they're in range, but your metabolites are all over the place or you have more five alpha activity than you should. And it just imbalances, right? Mm -hmm. So with minerals, that's kind of the deal. As far as research into it, the main one everybody knows is magnesium. That's the one that's been shown to be most helpful as far as supplementation goes. Now, there's also been some interesting research into sodium intake, salt intake, and there's been a couple conflicting studies, but the biggest one with the largest sample size basically shows an inverse relationship. So the more salt you take in, the less headaches you tend to have. So it's kind of a simple thing to do. Now, if you also have high blood pressure, probably not the best thing for you, but 
it's also not a cure, but again, it's cool that that's an inverse relationship. So we know increasing that ionic availability certainly helps. Now, part of my program, when we, we teach this to, to doctors, any practitioner really, is we do 25 hours just on nutrition. And one of the reasons I do that is when you look at the research into nutrition and foods and migraine, there are so many different things out there that have been shown to be helpful. My kind of goal was to figure out what are the threads that connect all those different things. So you'll see keto can be great, or the DASH diet can be great, or low carb can be great, or Atkins might help out it. And it's like, well, that's cool, but none of them were made for migraine and they all have different kind of principles. So how the heck can they all help out? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what we go through in about 25 hours is going through all those different threads. But, but the general one is not anything crazy, right? You get rid of the big four. That's where I start out. And the big four for migraine are gluten, dairy, caffeine, and alcohol. And I'll tell you right now, I have had to almost wrestle patients down to, uh, to get them to give up their coffee. But that is, in my case, a non-negotiable at this point, because I've seen way too many people screw up their progress just because they had a little bit of decaf coffee, right? It's just, and I can get into that. That's a whole nother conversation. But the easiest thing to say is get off of it. And also, I realize there's likely going to be a withdrawal. Just know that it is a bell-shaped curve, all right? When you get off of caffeine, the first day is going to be okay. The second and third days will likely suck. And after the third or fourth day, everything starts to get better and normalize. All right. Most people I find have tried to do it, get to day two or three, hate life and say, forget it. I'm going back to my coffee. And so that's a little thing I like to say. As far as supplements, that's another side of it. And quite frankly, that's why I developed the MQ7 was because I went through the literature and said, oh my goodness, there's a million things that people can take. And the dosages and the combinations make a huge difference. So you could have all the right ingredients into something and it's not going to do anything. So a great example is there's a combination of B vitamins, 6, 9, and 12 that have been shown to be really, really beneficial. But they did one where they had the exact same numbers of two of the vitamins, but I think they did, it was one milligram of folate in one study and then they did two milligrams in the other. And in the one milligram study, no change whatsoever. And in the two milligram study, it was like a 50% reduction with no changes in the other vitamins. So it's like, okay, well, now let's say you have all the right ingredients, but you have the wrong dosage, you're not getting any benefit. So what I ended up doing was I took all the ingredients and talked to the guys um, up at Biogenic Nutrition and just said, hey, shove all this into one product so that we don't have to take 50 million different things and I can just give this to patients. And that's what I do now. And so that's got everything from your magnesium to your B vitamins, to your fever fuel and your butter burn, CoQ10, anything you've ever heard of that's been researched and shown to be effective in that dosage, in that combination is in that product. So that's why I use that. As far as abortive goes, now this is really cool. The only natural abortive that's been shown has been ginger. And so I started giving people ginger because it's cheap, it's easy. And I was finding a lot of people do great. So the research supports four to 600 milligrams of ginger taken in a capsular form. And you can take another four to 600 after two hours. So if you're just looking for something, you can go to your grocery store and use that. But what I was finding is a lot of people that I thought should have responded didn't. And so we created another product called MGR that is this microionized form that is sublingual And what we are finding is some people have absorption issues, which I'm sure you're more familiar with than I am, and uh, they weren't able to take in the ginger. So when we do it sublingual, we bypass the GI tract and we take it directly. And that's helping a lot more people for the abortion of migraine without having to take triptans or Excedrin or things like that. So again, that was all born out of me going through all this stuff and just being annoyed at how many different options people had at this point. That made me so excited. You did a capsule for people to keep it. I mean, it can be cheap. super simple, super cheap, super simple. And then the next level, which is always, I mean, I go through this all the time. Like, are you going to handle this kind? And if you don't, if this isn't moving the needle, we might have to go to sublingual liposomal different absorption because of, yeah, people have a lot of issues there. That was what I was going to ask you was what you were geeking out on, but it was ginger. I thought it was ginger because this is how I came to you by talking to the guy you are talking to about making supplements and he was all geeked (laughs) out about it. And so I get excited when someone else is excited about (laughs) things. So here we are. Now, let me ask you about someone who really struggles with atmospheric pressure changes. Would the abortive of ginger, have you found that to be 
useful. That's such a tricky thing when it's the environment and it's, they know so that as far the as thing. the, absolutely that it works with a lot. Now I will tell you, it's just like, you know, taking a trip and it doesn't work for everybody. Right. And mm-hmm. so what I recommend is you try it, say, you know, atmosphere pressure, you got a storm coming in or whatever, you're at a different altitude and you have to start to have a migraine, take a full dose, which is like a dropper full. If that doesn't help within an hour, take another full dropper. If that doesn't help then the next time take two full doses right away. Right. Mm-hmm. If you've done that after two or three times and it doesn't help out, it's probably not going to work for you, right? That's what we find. But for those that do help, it happens really quickly and it happens really effectively. Now, as far as preventing migraines from atmospheric pressure, you can't change the weather, right? (laughs) Unfortunately, I haven't figured that one out yet. And so what you want to think of atmospheric pressure changes of is another thing that fills up the bucket. So the only thing you can do for that is increase the size of the bucket to deal with that and reduce the things that are already filling it up. So the same treatment you're already doing. And so what I find is the same thing with, say, alcohol, for example. Most people think they can never drink because they have migraines, when in reality, I found less than a handful of patients that actually have the genetic sulfation pathway issue that leads them to immediately a migraine after alcohol. 98% of people have a sensitivity to it and it fills up their bucket. So once they're treated, once they're feeling better, they can have a glass or two of wine or a couple margaritas. Maybe they'll have a hangover, but they won't have a migraine. Whereas I have a handful of patients that never get migraine, never get migraine, doing great. The second they look at alcohol, boom, migraine, right? And there is research down to this genetic predisposition that messes up the sulfation pathway for gluten, dairy, caffeine, alcohol, citrus, believe it or not, and chocolate. Mm. And so for those people, there's nothing you can do that will allow them to have those things without migraine. It's very rare. More likely, those are all sensitivities. So when you have more and more of them, it fills up your bucket more. You have more of a problem. As you drain the bucket, make it bigger. Now they can handle those things without leading to a migraine. I had someone once where it was vanilla extract was one of her triggers. Very frustrating. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I know. I I had pineapple. So I'll give you this one. Pineapple. For some reason, I have a lot of patients where that is the thing. So, you know, if you- But that makes sense with amines, you know, because from a nutrition point- It does, but it's also, you know, or you could say, yeah, histamine response. Mm -hmm. That's why we take it out for that. But I feel like it's something else because I've had a number of things with histamine that they contribute, but it's more of kind of a combination of things that lead to it. Whereas as pineapple has been one of those weird ones. It's just, it's like alcohol. It just, boom, it turns it on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't quite know why that is yet. Well, and it does cause that interesting tongue tingly feeling for a lot for some of people. It is, it is interestingly different in its own right. way. Yeah. It's um, strange. I want to come back to a comment on ginger in a moment, but talking about sulfur, do you ever just give people molybdenum and then help bypass this? So I haven't played with that yet, mainly because I look at it as if it's genetically mediated. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it is, I can think of two people in all of my (laughs) treatments of migraine patients where that was actually what was going on. So I just haven't really had the necessity for it at this Mm -hmm. point, but absolutely. I mean, this is kind of why I like to, to teach this course on nutrition, on musculoskeletal, on all this stuff, because every time I teach one of these modules, there's somebody in that class that knows more about that thing than I do. And so what I'm hoping is that triggers something like that. And then they go on to think or try something different in their expertise or their field. So I haven't messed with it yet. Maybe it's something that really helps out. Yeah, I think it can help out with. So, I mean, I do not enjoy sulfur issues, but it can, not can be useful. Um, yeah. So the cool thing about ginger also, I just love herbs when they work in something so simple because it's such a helpful motility. It's a useful GI herb from a motility's perspective and from a bitter's perspective. And we have hundreds of bitter receptors. I'm kind of obsessed with bitters and we just don't really (laughs) understand all the benefits. In fact, that brings up a question I had forgotten, which is we probably don't know. What do you think? What's your hypothesis on the mechanism of action and why ginger helps as an abortive? So that's a really great question. And we don't know. I mean, the going theory, because this is all they have right now, is that it likely interrupts the inflammatory cascade of the neuropeptides as migraine starts, which is what tryptans do, right? Mm -hmm. So, and same thing with the new CGRP medications. That's really what they're doing is they're not preventatives. They're just, once migraine starts, it releases this huge cascade of inflammatory Mm -hmm. mediators that essentially turns up the volume on the head Mm -hmm. pain. That's what it does. And so- that's what they think is happening with ginger. Now, this is really important. I didn't mention this before, but I know a lot of people have used things like ginger in the past for prevention of migraine and don't do that. <laughs> so what they found out is if you use ginger on a daily basis, mm-hmm. there is no reduction 
in migraine days mm-hmm. overall, Your right? With the bigger studies. Yeah, exactly. So I tell people, take ginger just like you would an Advil or a Triptan, mm-hmm. only take it when you absolutely need it. Now that's different for somebody that has GI issues, for example, right? My focus is migraine. So, you know, that, that's what I tell them. Whereas somebody that has, you know, nausea or GI issues, that would be good reason. Well, I would change it up too. I mean, I wouldn't just right. have people on it because like, it's sort of banned. I mean, it's a useful thing, but we should be able to be off of that as well. And, and still yeah, function. it creates physiological changes. So it's not something that you want to, you know, have in your daily routine. Right. We pretty much change up everything most of the time, right? We don't usually, ideally, right? <laughs> right. That would be a good thing. And as a comment, that was a lot of folate in the migraine supplement. And so and that's, that's cool. And that's, you know, and that's the surprising thing because usually I think just under a milligram or four to 800 micrograms is sufficient right. for some people. And then sometimes you'll see those 2000 microgram or two milligram products and it's pretty robust, which is fine. Yeah. Totally fine. But I'm and just commenting on it's, you know, I just wanted to make a note that it's remarkable. Like it's it is, a, it's a big difference. Well, and we found that with a lot of different things as far as dosages is stuff that I would think is way too much is great. And there's actually been other ones where like, I think it was fever few, for example, if you do too much of it, then you start to lose the benefits. That's an herb um, thing though. You know, yeah. it's herbs are so, sort of funny like that. They can be yep. more is not always better in herbs, depending on the mechanism of the herb. And from a nutrient perspective, you know, we were talking about vitamins, our public health recommendations. I think from a medical perspective, we're kind of like, oh, this is fine. Like a small dose. And sometimes yeah. if you want to see an efficacious or like an effective change, you do need to get a little more aggressive or you need to be okay with experimenting with it short term to see if you can make, cause you can make better changes with more robust. For sure. Doses, well, I mean, which, and, you know, vitamin D is a great one of that, right? 400 IUs is not really doing much of anything for people that yeah. need a, a change. Anything. But an interesting thing was, you know, when we look at B vitamins, for example, if your B vitamins are perfect, your levels are awesome and you have migraine and you take more, it can help reduce migraine. Right. Great. So hmm. just helps. But if your D levels are normal or, you know, anywhere from 30 to 100, increasing it at all from 30 to 40 up to 100, no change in the reduction of migraine. However, mm. if you're deficient, if you're under 30, you get an exponential increase in migraine. So this is one where it's like, you don't like B vitamins, you can just throw people and the worst thing it's going to do is nothing, right? But most likely it's going to help with a reduction. Whereas with D, you just want to make sure that they are not deficient. Once they're out of the deficient range, when it comes to migraine, you don't need to dose them up. Whereas something like, for example, BPPV, recurrent vertigo, we find that the higher your levels are, the lower your chances of recurrence. So jack people up on that for vertigo, but not for migraine. You know, before we leave nutrition, and we'll wrap here in a moment, but I kind of want to make sense of this. I mean, I just think of it as inflammatory cascaders, a little vanilla, but I've been surprised at as you mentioned earlier, some people, their bucket is going to be significantly affected by nutrition and some are not. And migraine is not my favorite area. And I will tell people this will either resolve quickly (laughs) or not Um, because I've either got the right tools in the toolbox or I don't. And people kind of seek, you know, they're kind of going through their own checklist of treatments. And so sometimes we've gotten pretty lucky with that change. And I'm even surprised by those stupid things like vanilla extract or what, you know, it's more than a means or whatever. It's really interesting. And if I quickly think about this, I would say all of these people were post-concussion or post-TBI or whatever. And so there must be some interesting inflammatory cascade that creates, because there's certain, I mean, even like the general public, some people are going to see, there's certain classes of people, they're going to see bigger changes from food changes than other people. And that's, that's cool. So what is the downstream effect when you've got neuroinflammation or TBI where like you start to have issues with foods that you didn't have issues with, if you can tell me that. So that's more what you're dealing with when it comes to blood brain barrier. You also Mm -hmm. get the breakdown in the GI tract as well. We find a really heavy correlation with TBI and leaky gut. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that we do recommend checking on -hmm. patients that have had TBI. So, I mean, to be quite honest, it's kind of like when we talk about diplopia or double vision, there's rarely, if ever, a case of concussion that you see where they don't have some type of diplopia. The same kind of deal happens with leaky gut, right? Mm -hmm. Almost everybody has this intestinal hyperpermeability after they've had some type of head trauma. And we know that the blood-brain barrier relates really, really heavily to the lining in the gut. So, now, that can heal up as the brain gets better. That's what we tend to find is if you can heal the brain, you can heal the gut and almost vice versa. And this is yeah. why it's always funny to me. You find people that are 
you know, just brain rehab experts that say, no, all you got to do is fix the brain and the gut takes care of itself. And then you have people that are gut experts. They're like, no, 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 you take care of the gut and then the brain gets fine. And it's like, well, if both of those things can happen, maybe there's something to both of them, right? So mm-hmm. when I look at it, I tend to go more with the anti-inflammatory baseline for concussion and, and for TBI patients. And then my focus is neuro rehab, right? So I really focus on that. And part of the reason I'm able to do that is the areas in which we practice, we have amazing naturopaths and naturopathic medical doctors, nutritionists, and people that if I really need tons of testing and in-depth, you know, consultation, I send them somewhere else, right? But whereas with migraine, that's the only one that I like to do everything in-house because there's so many little nuances to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I used to do a ton of treatment with, you know, say hypothyroid and diabetes and all these different kind of metabolic disorders. I generally farm that out now just because it's not my focus, but I used to do a ton of it because it's so powerful, but it also, you only have so much time in a day and you only have so much time with the patient. And so we try to focus on what we do differently, which is the brain rehab, whereas the nutritional stuff I I tend to send out for. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. So you've got a book. Yeah. Mastering Mastering Migraine. You can find it on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Got it. I'm confused because this week I was doing Mastering Your Minerals. I'm like, is that really the same (laughs) thing? Uh So will you run through some of the treatments that you talk about in the book? We'll frame it up like that. And that way people know they can learn more there. Sure. Yeah. So we go through a bunch of different stuff. And the first couple of chapters are all on kind of what we've talked about, what is migraine and, and how do you kind of frame it? And then we look into the different therapies. So when it comes to the neurological musculoskeletal side, we look at targeting manual therapies. So your traditional myofascial release, chiropractic, PT, that type of stuff. We also get into vestibular rehab a little bit more specifically, things like eye exercises, gaze stability, things like that can be extremely powerful. We talk a little bit about laser therapy. We talk about things like motion guidance, for example, or things like the D2, which we use, which is a peripheral training device. It's really cool. We use it a lot with concussion patients and those types of things, right? So that's really what we talk about from the physical neurological feedback standpoint. We also talk about peripheral nerve stimulation. So there's lots of different things you can do from SSEP units to, you know, the stim pod out of South Africa is great that we really like to, you know, galvanic stim. There's all sorts of applications for that, that you can get into. I also do talk a little bit about nutrition. You know, we don't get super, super in-depth. Just again, we take 25 hours on that. So I only have a chapter or two, but we get a little bit into the basics of nutrition and and how to really go about that. And then the same thing with hormones. My consistent thing I find with migraine patients isn't one hormonal problem. It's that they all have a hormonal problem. (laughs) That's the deal. And so you want to test pretty comprehensively for that. And so that's basically what we get into. We do have a whole chapter on concussion and migraine. I talk more about hemiplegic migraine, which is one of my favorites to treat because it responds remarkably well to the rehab that we do. I've seen probably more hemiplegic cases than almost anybody. Because when we even talk to people that that have gone through Stanford and UCLA, those guys have only seen one or two a year. So we see a ton of those patients and that's one of our favorites to treat. So we talk about that, a little bit about genetics, things like that. So that's more about the book. For those practitioners, if you're interested, my course is through the Carrick Institute, also called Mastering Migraine. So if you go to the Carrick Institute website, you can learn more about that. and, And that if you really want to get in the nitty gritty about everything that we do, that's where it is. And then as far as, you know, the MQ7 and the MGR, that's all through biogenicnutrition.com. And, you know, if you go on social media, we're at Migraine Doctors. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of us. We're usually pretty active there and uh, love to answer questions. Cool. Thank you so much. You covered everything I needed to know, which was where could people train under you? I think the only thing I need to know is what a hemiplegic migraine is. (laughs) So this is actually a scary one if it's the first time they have it. So hemiplegic migraine for most people will present exactly like a stroke the first time they have it. So you'll get facial drooping on one side, you'll get weakness, you'll get tingling, you'll get numbness, you won't be able to walk. Now there's variations of this. Sometimes it's just facial drooping, sometimes it's slurred speech, sometimes it's a little tingling in the arm, but full hemiplegic is it mimics a stroke. So the first time it happens, you'll go to the hospital, you'll freak out, usually younger. And most likely what you'll see is you have all these symptoms, they run all the tests and they say, well, we think you still had a stroke, but like we didn't find anything. So maybe it's a migraine. Good luck. You know, that's Mm -hmm. what most of my patients are told. And so if you've experienced something like that, or even a variation, and you've already done the MRIs and the CTs, and they just don't know what's going on, and you get recurrences, that's hemiplegic. The reason I'm really interested in it, besides it 
responding extremely well to us, is that hemiplegic migraine is the only form of migraine in which there is a one-to-one ratio of gene to hemiplegic migraine. So there's three genes that cause hemiplegic migraine, one, two, and three. There's a CACNA1A, there's a SCN1A2, and I think an SCN, there's a ATP1A. And so those are the three that if you have an SMP on any of those, you have hemiplegic migraine. It's one-to-one. So my whole theory of gene abnormalities and causing this bucket and all this stuff, the reason that our treatment works so well is because we're pumping up that protein production and it works extremely quickly. And so what my thought is, if we can do research on this and it's really easy to grasp, these genes cause this problem, this treatment fixes it, I get it. Now you can start applying that to all the different gene variations and the different things we see with migraine. Okay, last question. I, is Bell's palsy a potential misdiagnosis? Like if it's not, if it's kind of questionable of hemiplegic? That's a good question. I had to ask. Possibly. So I would say it's possible. So for example, I had a patient once, it was a young girl in 20s, and she had it that lasted for like seven months before we got to work with her. So she couldn't even get off the couch for like seven or eight months. That's unusual. So like a Bell's palsy is usually going to last three to six months. Mm-hmm. So is it possible? Yes. The majority of my hemiplegic patients are all age ranges and they tend to have flare-ups just like migraine. So they'll get an attack. It lasts for a day to two to three, and then it goes away. It can last for months. So again, possible? Yes. Likely no. But Bell's palsy is also just going to be the facial muscles. You're not going to have any other issues whatsoever. And that can be what's called a brainstem aura with migraine. But normally with hemiplegic, you're also going to see some other symptoms, whether it's into the limbs or whether it's into, um, you know, different parts of the face. It's just, yeah, it's hard to say. Well, well, we're so fortunate we got to learn from you today. People can learn more and train under you at the Carrick Institute. They can get these two products at Biogenic Nutrition, but it's MGR, I think. Yep. MGR is the abortive sublingual ginger and MQ7 is the preventative that has literally everything in the research in one product. All right, cool. And don't take MGR ginger all the time. Otherwise it's not good for an abortive and your migraine doctors on social media, right? Instagram. Yep. You got it. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.